You've tuned into The Dr. Lowe Show with naturopathic doctor, Dr. Lauren Noel, where you hear the best in natural medicine, nutrition, and mindset from the world's top doctors, authors, influencers, and Dr. Lowe herself. Trying just to pop a pill for a symptom? You've got the wrong exit. Seeking doable ways to live a happier, healthier life and have fun doing it? Welcome to The Dr. Lowe Show. Hello, thank you for joining me for another episode. This is Dr. Lowe, aka Dr. Lauren Noel with the Dr. Lowe Show. It is so good to have you. Hope you are doing well. When I'm recording this, this is about a week before the election. So life's a little cray cray right now. And uh, hopefully you all are doing the best you can to keep things somewhat chill in your life. We all could use it. I have an added stress because I am actually in the process of moving. Um, I shared on my last show, I'm moving from my moldy house and into actually a friend's house for the next six months. Um, you guys may know her, Dr. Ilana Rimmel. Um, you might follow her over on Instagram. She's awesome. She's one of my very best friends. And it just so happened that she was going to be moving for six months to a vacation house for just a staycation in San Diego. And that's exactly how long I was looking for a place. So it was definitely a divine intervention. And I'm really looking forward to being settled so that I can just focus on continuing my healing from being in a moldy house for five years. Yes. I'm so glad that I finally figured it out. I share all about my adventures with all this stuff over on my Instagram. So you guys can definitely follow me there at Dr. Lowe. That's D-O-C-T-O-R underscore L-O. Also just want to say, if you have been listening to the show and you're liking what you're hearing, I would love if you could just press pause, take a sec and leave me a review um, on the podcast app. That would be so greatly appreciated because the more good reviews I get, the more it helps to um, get the show out to more people. It's better exposure. And we want this information to reach as many people as possible. And before we get into the show, I want to give some love to our show sponsor, Paleo Valley. Move over Organifi. This is actually my favorite new superfood greens. They're organic super greens. And I will tell you why. It doesn't have wheatgrass, which I'm a fan of because there are actually a lot of people are sensitive to wheatgrass, it turns out. And um, for lots of people, the, the grasses can be harder to digest. It can be um, inflammatory in the gut for some folks. So I like that this doesn't have the grasses, but it is loaded with greens. It has organic kale. It has broccoli, spirulina, spinach, kale sprouts, um, cabbage, cauliflower, collard greens. Uh, what else? Parsley, broccoli sprouts, turmeric, and a lot of other things like um, blueberries, raspberries, elderberry, uh, and there's more things, but it's just loaded with amazing nutrients that is highly absorbable. And let's be honest, how often are you going to actually eat all of those things? And it also has a prebiotic fiber. So it's great for the gut. There's no sugar. It's gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, non-GMO, um, and no artificial preservatives. So I'm a huge fan. And plus my one-year-old 
um, Zion, he really likes it. So I put it in his bottle and he drinks it down. So I am a huge, huge fan and it tastes super good. So if you want to get your Paleo Valley Super Greens, you just head over to paleovalley.com and then at checkout, enter Dr. Low, D-R-L-O, and you'll get 15% off. And they have a bunch of other goodies on there like vitamin C. They have an organic bone broth protein. Um, they have a uh, organ complex, grass-fed organ complex. So if you have low iron, that's a really great option. So check them out. All right. Well, I'm so excited about this show, you guys. I have to say it's one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. And I've been doing this show for almost 10 years now. I just felt like this was such a valuable resource for people dealing with fibromyalgia. So if you yourself deal with it, you are in for a treat because you're going to hear information on this show that you don't hear anywhere else. And if you know someone who deals with fibromyalgia, please do them a favor and send them this episode because chances are they don't know this stuff and they're probably really suffering because it's a difficult condition to deal with. Um, so with all that said, let's jump into the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I have a new guest joining us today, talking all about his book, The Fibro Fix. We have to we have Dr. David Brady, who I have followed him for a while. I've seen him speak at different conferences and always loved hearing him talk because he's so smart and he always has new things to share based on new research. He has actually over 30 years of experience as an integrative practitioner and over 25 years in health sciences academia. He's also a, he's a licensed naturopathic medical physician in Connecticut and Vermont, and he's board certified in functional medicine and clinical nutrition. He's a fellow of um, American College of Nutrition, and he also completed his initial clinical training as a doctor of chiropractic. So he's just, his brain is a sponge. He just likes to learn as much as he can very clearly. Um, he is the chief medical officer at Designs for Health. Um, which is a supplement company that I love. They actually helped to formulate the Golden Eggs products for my fertility course. So I am a huge fan of Designs for Health. And there's lots more that I could share about him, but I think we can just have him join on and we can talk more about his story. So Dr. David Brady, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for asking me. It was such a pleasant surprise to get your email. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to make it work. Yeah, before we started recording, I was... Um, I was telling you about how I've dealt with a lot of my own chronic pain and I'm, I'm an open book on my show. I just share about my own health stuff because as doctors, we're still humans and we still deal with things and, yeah. you know, we can have great health and then things can happen and all of a sudden we're dealing with issues. And so I, you know, for a long time I had this pressure that I had to be this, you know, image of health and this example. And I was like, you know, I just got to let that go because that was making things worse. So, so yeah, I was dealing with mold in my house. I've now moved out. And, you know, I've only been out for about a month and, you know, things have gotten better to an extent, but I do still deal with a lot of pain and I had suspected fibromyalgia. I've never had it officially diagnosed, but, um, so I'm definitely looking forward to talking about this topic. And I know that you do a lot of work with autoimmunity and the microbiome. So we can talk, um, probably on, on another show more about that stuff, but, and I know that actually relates to fibromyalgia to an extent too. So we'll, we'll get into that, but before we jump into the meat of the show, I would love to know why are you even interested in fibromyalgia? What got you interested in it? And even also just your own kind of story of becoming a doctor. 
Oh boy, that, that could take the whole show. <laughs> In two minutes, no. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't take the conventional route, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I was originally a touring rock and roll musician. Really? Uh, and, yeah, and then I, um, then I uh, went to undergraduate school, got an engineering degree, worked for McDonnell Douglas Aerospace for a while, and then got into biomechanics and like human applications of engineering, found myself in chiropractic college, Graduated chiropractic college, and then I, I went to a chiropractic college, um, Texas Chiropractic College in Houston, and it was a very progressive one. We did a lot of our hospital rotations in the in the massive Houston or the Houston Medical Center, and I had a lot of mentors there that were really into natural management of internal disorders, like you know interventional nutrition, botanical medicine, very much like the modern iteration of naturopathic uh, physicians in medicine. And uh, was influenced by them. And uh, really, then I found functional medicine and kind of became a protege of, uh, of Dr. Jeffrey Bland. And, mm -hmm. and off to the races I went. And then I, you know, I've, after practicing for a while uh, and even teaching, I found myself in medical school. I went and, you know, became a naturopathic medical physician uh, while I was on teaching faculty. So it was a, you know, wow. kind of an interesting ride. Yeah. Uh, definitely a slalom course to get where I am. But I, I do think that it, it, there's benefit in that, you know, and I have a lot of friends who I, 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 well, before COVID, I used to travel around and speak at all these conferences and things like that. And uh, a lot of them, you know, they went the route of, you know, you know, um, Ivy League undergraduate school and then to Yale Medical School and then to, you know, they did it the real top end con uh, conventional way. And uh, they're really, really smart, but um, they think different than I do. And right. I think it's because of the path, you know, um, having this background in these various types of disciplines and the way they think and their paradigms all kind of flavor, you know, uh, kind of how I think medically. And I think it's definitely had an influence in how I've approached fibromyalgia. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, you definitely think outside the box with all of your pursuits and the way that you teach and was... Were you finding that you were seeing fibromyalgia a lot or did you just feel like there wasn't, you know, good resources, there weren't good resources out there and you felt like you needed to kind of fill in the gaps or why fibromyalgia? Yeah, kind of all of the above. Um, I, I realized really quickly when I went into clinical practice back in 1991 um, and uh, at, out of chiropractic school, uh, I started seeing all these patients that had really, you know, complicated problems, you know, and right vast majority were were women and they had you know they came in to me as a chiropractor because you know their their muscles hurt right they had body pain all over but you know it didn't take uh, a rocket scientist to figure out you know this wasn't a muscle problem right this you can't you know you can't adjust it away you can't electrical muscle stim it away you can't ultrasound it away you can't massage it away right. it's a deeper deeper problem and these patients all had very common stories you know um usually a lot of stress, a lot of uh, early life trauma. And then they were in a similar position now with not only this pervasive body-wide aching or pain that wasn't really localizable. It wasn't in one spot. It was all over. And they were terribly fatigued. Almost all of them had a lot of gut problems, you know, a lot of like constipation and or diarrhea and bloating and gas, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attack, a lot of insomnia. And they were all the same. And, you know, it dawned on me, 
they never prepared me for this, right? Mm, <laughs> they right. didn't teach me about this. I mean, we, and some of them had come in with this label of fibromyalgia and, you know, they get it from various places still today. Some people come in and say they have fibromyalgia because their neighbor told them or they diagnosed themselves on, you know, Dr. Google or WebMD, or they came from a rheumatology center of excellence uh, with the diagnosis. Many times they're wrong. Sometimes they're right. But I knew that in chiropractic school, uh, you would figure a, a disorder that affects, you know, the muscles from the standpoint of at least making them feel achy or pain, that you'd learn a lot about it. And I didn't. And uh, admittedly, it was almost 30 years ago, but still, I should have learned more than I did. And I went to a really good chiropractic school. And, um, you know, it was still almost addressed sort of in a almost questioning manner, you know, like, a, is this a real thing? Or is this something being made up? And I think that was even worse in conventional medicine. And then when I went to medical school, um, they didn't do much of a better job. Honestly, I didn't learn that much more about it there. And right. then later on, I figured out with another colleague of mine, Dr. Mike Schneider, who's a researcher in myofascial pain at the University of Pittsburgh, but he also started as a chiropractor. And we used to teach seminars together in like myofascial pain syndrome, where we would do um, sort of these uh, trainings, mainly for chiros, um, on not only hands-on like um, physical medicine things, um, but also nutritional and functional medicine. And we started talking and we both had the exact same sort of experience. And we were like, something is missing here. So we basically both together, we made a pact and we said, you know, we're going to figure this out. And we just dug into the medical literature for several years, like everything ever written on fibromyalgia from the world's experts, you know, which were mostly rheumatologists. Um, and then we started going to conferences. We, we read everything. And then we started doing our own research. Um, and we were both seeing lots of patients. And uh, we kind of went from there. And then once we kind of think, you know, thought at least we figured it out a little bit enough to have something to offer, we started publishing and we started publishing in medical journals, mainly family practice journals and things that would get out to the, to the docs, seeing the patients on the front lines, making the diagnosis, because we were really convinced they were making the diagnosis incorrectly most of the time. And the data and the literature has since proved this correct. Um, and, uh, and it went from there all, all the way up to, you know, writing you know, a popular book, The Fibrofix, which was basically telling the whole story instead of for my medical colleagues, it was telling the story to the patient so that they can really be their, their own self-advocate and because they need it. They, they need either themselves or someone very close to them to be their advocate because if they're depending on, you know, the system, if you will, to bring them to the right place uh, in the diagnosis, evaluation, and the treatment, of, of either fibromyalgia or most of the things that get called fibromyalgia, you know, it's a real crapshoot. Right. 100%. Well, I think it's such a superpower to have the, to be an actual clinician of seeing patients and diving into the research. Cause a lot of times it's one or the other and you, you really yeah, lose out true. on that connection. Yeah. And, and so great too, to start with that foundational education of natural medicine and you know having that philosophy and then going more into the conventional versus the other way around right because then you have to like unlearn all of that philosophy if you start in the conventional training so i think that's that's yeah. really great so i love it well let's dive into some of the kind of details about fibromyalgia so um you mentioned a lot of a lot of things that are associated with it but what actually is fibromyalgia for people who aren't familiar with it 
Well, if you look at like the diagnostic criteria, it, it has evolved a lot over the years. You know, it used to really center on the fact that the people hurt all over, but um, in reality, it's a lot, much larger constellation of concomitant symptoms that the patient experiences. And I mentioned some of them, the, main, the hallmark symptom is pain, but it's not pain that you can like, if someone says, where do you hurt? You know, if you have like a, a, a discrete problem, you know, like you, you have a ligament injury in your knee or you have a blown disc in your back or you have a rotator cuff injury or whatever, you can usually point to your shoulder or point to your knee or point to your back, right? Right. Um, if you ask most of these people with true fibromyalgia, which we kind of tend to refer as classic fibromyalgia because the, these are the people that have all the classical characteristics that line up uh, for a true fibromyalgia diagnosis. If you ask them where it hurts, they just go, you know, I just ache all over. So one of the things is you, you really need to have pain, which is called global pain, right? Mm -hmm. Globally, meaning above the waist, below the waist, to the left side, on the right side, out in the extremities, in toward the midline of the body. It can't be, oh, my neck hurts and my back hurts, right? Or my knee hurts and my shoulder hurts. That's not fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is a pervasive, achiness that you can't really put your finger on, right? And you perceive the pain or achiness in the more softer compliant tissues. So like muscles, fascia, ligaments, tendons, not joints. So, you know, if you have joint pain, frank joint pain, then you're looking more toward arthritis or inflammatory arthritis or other types of, you know, autoimmune conditions or what have you, not fibromyalgia. So, it's, it's in the softer tissues. And that's where the name comes from. Fibromyo, meaning fibrous, you know, stretchy uh, tissues, compliant tissues, myo muscle and alga pain. So fibromyalgia means pain in the muscles and soft tissues. But, you know, that name tends to imply that the problem is in the muscles and the soft tissues. And that's actually not the case uh, because it's really a, a bit of a brain trick. There's a perception of pain in those tissues I just mentioned about, but we can't find anything wrong in those tissues, right? Unless there's also another problem. So it's not muscle tightness or spasm. It's not a metabolic problem in the muscle, like a crisis of energy production and many other things that people have tried to say it is. There's no evidence for that. It's a perceived pain in those areas. So I, I often uh, give the analogy of um, phantom limb pain. You know, when someone gets a a limb uh, amputated, but years later they can feel pain in that foot that isn't there anymore. Right. Clearly the problem isn't in the foot, the problem's in the brain. So it's a sort of a loop or a feedback loop and a perceptual uh, issue in the brain. So these patients really have a failure of proper uh, perception of sensory stimulus around the body and they perceive things as pain that would otherwise not be painful to a normal person. And by normal person, I mean a person without fibromyalgia. So something like, you know, a light touch or the wind blowing on them or something like that may be perceived as pain versus the normal stimulus. And then along the lines of having that pain, almost 100% of these people have significant fatigue so it's almost like, oftentimes, you know, it's been lumped with chronic fatigue syndrome, but they're very different things. But there is an element of chronic fatigue ability in fibro patients, and then they have crossover a lot to the intestines. So mm. gas, bloating, diarrhea, they often get diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome or IBS or functional okay. bowel disorders. Um, it's almost 100% alignment there. 
and then there's the sort of psychological emotional component which the biggest uh, factor there is anxiety sometimes verging on you know panic attacks at times but definitely anxiety what we call hypervigilance meaning you know there are these people who are kind of always waiting for the next catastrophe waiting for the next shoe to drop right they're worry warts they're uber caretakers they're they have that default personality all even down to the point of a bit of sort of OCD, like, you know, everything has to be in its place, everything has to be neat, and they, they need to kind of control their environment very well. These are, some of these are a little bit stereotypes, but they're very, very consistent in us finding these in these patients at a much higher level than you would find them in the general population. And then depression, um, usually mild to moderate depression, not severe depression. And not only depression because they're sick, although that's in play, a lot of these people actually um, report some level of mood disorder or depression, mild depression before they ever had the symptoms of fibromyalgia, the other symptoms. And then the final one really is a sleep disturbance. And we know it's a very, very specific sleep disturbance, but what the patient experiences is uh, what's called unrefreshed sleep. So they can wake up after 12 hours sleeping and they feel like they never slept. They know they slept. They slept clock time they were sleeping, but they didn't go into the right phases of sleep to get restoration. So they wake up feeling like they never slept. Mm. Wow. That's fascinating. So, it's a tough disorder. <laughs> so you is know? it in terms of how it's diagnosed, it, it sounds like it's, it's subjective, subjectively driven, right? They have yeah, particular to a large degree. Yeah, it is provider. There's a great deal of provider judgment in it. Mm. Although there is a discrete diagnostic criteria that has been published by the American College of Rheumatology, and it's been modified multiple times through the years. It first came out in 1990, uh, and doctors will remember the, the 11 out of 18 tender points and all that kind of stuff, which has right. gone the wayside. But there is a diagnostic criteria, but there is still just some inherent level of uh, judgment call and subjectivity and experience that has to be brought to the um, diagnosis. And most doctors, before they actually make the diagnosis, they never even consult the diagnostic criteria. They don't really understand it or know much about it. Right. And they don't follow it. <laughs> they just, when they've run out of other options and the person's female, middle age, and they say their muscles hurt and they're tired all the time, they just diagnose them with fibromyalgia. Most right. Of the time. So most it's more of often in females. And then as they get what, like in their thirties and up. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, so any particular tests that can help to make the diagnosis, like any particular genes or, um, I know, I, I think I came across a test that would check like cytokines or something like yeah. that. So, so yeah, anything there? Well, there's no gold standard, like binary tests, like fibromyalgia factor, right? right, right. Yes or no. It's more complicated than that. By and large, uh, laboratory testing has been used in a rule out fashion, right? So you're right. trying to make sure it's nothing else that's causing the fatigue and the muscle ache. So things like inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein and SED rates and anti-nuclear antibodies and rheumatoid factors and CCP, all of that is to rule out, hey, is this really inflammatory arthritis or some kind of autoimmune myofasciitis or you know myositis or mixed connective tissue disorder or something like that. Um, and then, you're definitely going to do lab work, you know, to rule out 
anemia, uh, iron deficiency anemia, uh, things that can cause fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Low red blood cell counts, uh, B12 folate deficiencies, all of that. You got to rule all of that out. And even, you know, some people have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia when they've actually had metastatic cancer that hadn't been diagnosed yet because it wow. can make you fatigued, it can make you feel achy, it can, make, it can do a lot of things like that. MS, things like that, have often got diagnosed as, as a fibromyalgia. So the laboratory really needs to unfold as the clinician sort of sees the patient, does a good history, does a good exam. Um, there is some modern, what, what's called, you know, metabolic sort of uh, signature testing that you're referring to, where they're looking at different advanced cytokine uh, patterning um, and uh, lymphocyte sumsets and things like that. Those are starting to be developed, but they're very new. And we really don't know how reliable they are. Um, there is one out there commercially. It's not used really, um, it's not been broadly adopted, but there is one out there. Um, and um, then there's imaging, right? You can do some imaging and other diagnostic studies to rule out other things. Like one of the, one of the most confusing uh, diagnostic points with fibromyalgia is something called small fiber polyneuropathy. So that has to be tested for, and um, it often involves skin biopsy to look at changes in the, in the uh, nerve roots deep in the skin. And you gotta find a neurologist who really knows what they're doing with that. It's, it's not easy to do. But there, there are two new things as far as objective testing. One is there's some uh, patterns or signatures being developed looking at PET scans and functional brain imaging, mm. uh, seeing which areas of the brain are, are kind of abnormally showing abnormal metabolic activity or lighting up, as we say. Because there is some uh, evidence that there's microglial activation deep in the deep centers of the brain that have to do with pain perception mm. and uh, and this, what's called descending antinociception, which is kind of shutting off a stimuli from being interpreted as pain. Um, so that's interesting. And then there's actually one of the ways you can fairly accurately, uh, objectively find does someone have fibromyalgia or not, is to put them in a sleep lab and really tightly look at their brain waves during sleep. And most sleep centers don't know how to do this because they're used to just looking for apnea, right. for sleep apnea. This is much more specialized and it, it looks for what's called alpha wave intrusion on your delta wave sleep. And that's what causes the um, sort of unrefreshed sleep because alpha waves are there when you're still kind of almost still awake, kind of half asleep, half awake in that kind of middle ground right? Um, where you're still not fully given in to being defenseless in deep sleep. Um, and these patients never allow themselves to go into that delta wave sleep, stage three and four sleep. They get these alpha waves riding over the top, which sort of sabotages their uh, healing, you know, their restoration and healing abilities when they're sleeping that are supposed to happen. They, it's almost like they can never let themselves be entirely physically vulnerable. Right. And then they come back to their early, the, the real common story in these subjects of early life stress, trauma, and things like that. Is there a, a certain age range that you tend to see that trauma? Uh, it, you know, the, the, more, the worse the trauma is, like, you know, it varies from 
verbal abuse. Like let's say you have a, a yelling, shouting father figure in the house, uh, authoritarian kind of, you know, that kind of dad. Uh, and a, a, a young lady who's um, kind of has the opposite personality, right? More quiet, more reserved. It can be, that can be enough trauma in some, mm -hmm. but then it goes up through physical trauma of, let's say the, the mom, like if, if it's a, you know, physical abuse type of relationship, acrimonious divorces, alcoholism, substance abuse, all that dysfunction that can happen in family units when particularly a, a girl is very young can kind of reprogram the nervous system uh, and, and push push them into this hypervigilance pattern, which then sort of manifests later in life in things like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, panic disorder, all the way up to, you know, the worst is the express ticket to it is actual, you know, sexual abuse of the person. Mm -hmm. Then that, that's probably the worst thing that you can see. And, you know, this stuff, males grow up, you know, young, young boys grow up in these environments too. Sure. And they get their own level of price that they pay for it. Uh, but it's different, and we don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, there just seems to be inherent adaptive differences in the brain and in the neurotransmitter patterning and, and the neuroplasticity of the brain in youth between the genders. And, you know, um, males tend to, in that environment, tend to grow up to have a higher likelihood to, if they were abused, they have a higher likelihood to abuse the same way. Mm -hmm. They become the next generation of abuser, or they develop disorders that are reflective of them sort of lashing out and making the world pay, you know, mm. like easy to anger, easy to frustrate, and even acts of violence where you don't see females doing that. They, females have a tendency more to kind of internalize the trauma mm -hmm. and make themselves suffer, which wow. is really deep, right? But um, one could argue that the female way of handling all of this, because there's going to be an adaptation, right, one way or the other, that the female way of handling this is much healthier way. It may not be healthier for them as an individual, but it's certainly but for society. Yeah. That's so interesting that the men, you know, yeah. kind of experience the pain outside of themselves and the women yeah. have it feel it themselves. And I yeah. would think that there would be a hormonal link too, right? Cause it's like sure. it easing up for women. There very well may be. And there is some literature linking, you know, the role of estrogens and progesterone and other sort of, you know, female sex hormones um, with, some of the mechanisms of of um, of the aberrant kind of brain patterns that happen, and the failure of the descending antinociceptive system, and and other things like that. But we we really don't know yet. Kind of in its infancy, understanding the gender specificity in the disorder, which is which is extreme. I sure, mean, and I would see a link with PTSD, which I think kind of explains what you just talked yeah. about, and then also adrenal imbalances yep. and thyroid imbalances, right? I mean, we Absolutely. know thyroid cortisol is anti-inflammatory, right? So if you have flatline cortisol, that probably could come yeah. along with this. Yeah. Listen, the, the vast majority of these subjects who truly have classic fibromyalgia, their adrenals are shot and their thyroid is, um, if not overtly abnormal, it's, you know, clinically very suboptimal and mm -hmm. they really struggle in that, you know, T4 to T3 conversion, T3 receptor uh, insensitivity. They really need their thyroids brought back online. And some of it may be the sabotaging of the conversion enzymes by cortisol mm -hmm. uh, over many, many years. 
but they have a definitely distinct adrenal pattern too. They don't have the classic adrenal exhaustion as you know it used to be called with low cortisol and low catecholamines. They, they generally have low cortisol, but they have elevated catecholamines. So mm. if you look deeper, you know, a lot of docs will do a salivary cortisol and it's just low. And, you know, I don't even need to do those after 30 years. I can look at someone and tell you what their salivary cortisol is, but it's not that easy with the, the hormones produced out of the adrenal medulla, which are your, you know, um, your adrenaline, right? Epinephrine, norepinephrine, your catecholamine. Mm. And when you're overproducing them, you get anxiety, you get right. panic, you get hypervigilance. And that's what we see. And that's exactly, you, you hit it right on the head. Uh, it's PTSD. Yeah. So the neurological patterns and the neurotransmitter patterns we see in classic fibromyalgia is essentially identical to PTSD. It's so fascinating. You know, when you said earlier about feeling, you know, pain all over, but the actual tissues they're okay. I, I wonder yeah. about toxicity and maybe toxins in the tissues. Do you think there's anything there with, with that? I don't, I haven't seen anything that's consistent enough mm. showing that, you know, it's a certain toxin or there are toxins in the, in those tissues. They've, you know, they've done a lot of biopsy work. They've not noticed anything physical different in the myofibrils mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Like, okay. you know, you, you can see differences in a myofascial trigger point right? You see that area of, of, um, of tightness, and then you see the, the taut band along uh, the outer edges of it. And, you know, the muscle is, is, is in a different physical state. There's no anatomical or physical mm -hmm. changes in a, in a tender area in yeah. someone with fibromyalgia. They've done metabolic studies looking at like mitochondrial function and mm -hmm. ATP production and things like that. Really nothing that has stood out. And, you know, I, I, I can't say I've really seen any really good comprehensive studies looking for like environmental toxins or anything in the muscle, yeah. but they definitely looked for metabolic toxins, you know, like lactic acid and things like that. Sure. Okay. And then what about any links that you've seen with perhaps hidden infections like Epstein-Barr virus or, you know, toxic mold illness or Lyme? Anything with those? Yeah, I, I, I think, I don't think those things cause fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. I think those things cause a lot of symptoms that are very much like fibromyalgia, and mm -hmm. they get diagnosed as fibromyalgia. Lyme, for instance, tends to cause more articular pain when it causes pain, less global uh, myofascial, you know, less global like muscle type of pain. Right. And uh, with Lyme, you don't get as much of the unrefreshed sleep, anxiety disorder, panic. You, you can get depression, you can get some other things. And uh, with Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, HSV, uh, you know, LTV, and all those other kind of ubiquitous stealth viruses, uh, in some people when they activate, you can definitely get a lot of fatigue. You can yeah. get myalgia too, but you definitely get fatigue. So that's more in that kind of bucket of chronic fatigue syndrome. Sure. Uh, and, you know, ME mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it, depending on what country you're in, it's very different from fibromyalgia because chronic fatigue syndrome often happens after a really like an acute post-viral, like someone says, you know, oh, I had like a really bad flu and I never got better, right? Interesting. Um, you don't get that in fibromyalgia. And in those chronic fatigue patients, they're really fatigued and their cortisols are flatlined. 
but generally their, their catecholamines are never high. They're, they're shot too. They're really low. And they don't tend to have the unrefreshed sleep. They don't tend to have the gut, the IBS kind of symptoms. Right. So there's definitely differences in those populations. And wow. there's a couple of different diagnostic criteria between chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. And they were originally kind of linked and talked about in like as partners. You know, it was always in the early literature 30 years ago plus, it was chronic fatigue syndrome slash fibromyalgia. Right, right. And it still lives today. You see it all over the place. And the minute you see an author saying chronic fatigue syndrome slash fibromyalgia, <laughs> you should pretty much throw it out. Yeah, it's a qualifier. It's like, all right. <laughs> gotcha. It's very different, yeah. That's so interesting how, you know, the, the chronic fatigue is more associated with like a post-infection or infectious yeah. type of link, whereas fibromyalgia is more of a neurological or like a PTSD type of association. Yeah. I think that's really helpful to, yeah. you know, see it simply like that. Um, and it's not to say that people can't have all the above, right? Some people have yeah. those, have all of the things we talked about. So it's not always one thing. Yeah, I, but, I always told my my uh, students and residents, the patient always reserves the right to have more than one disorder. At any right. And usually they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about specifically with the gut? I know that's a big focus of yours. Um, yeah. Do you find that the connection with fibromyalgia and the gut is more of a neurological thing? Or do you ever find that there are certain you know, microbes or dysfunctions that could be associated otherwise? Yeah, you know, um, that's a great question. I think the biggest link with fibromyalgia in the gut is neurological because okay. the enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system of the intestines, and, you know, it's the only system that has sort of an independent nervous system, um, carries on most of its functions all on its own without the brain telling it what to do, but there's crosstalk, right? Um, those same neurotransmitters that are involved in fibromyalgia, particularly serotonin, is the main messenger molecule in the enteric or the gut's nervous system. And you have deficiency, you have a relative serotonin deficiency, not only in the central nervous system in classic fibromyalgia, but also in the enteric nervous system. And that tends to be what causes the low um, motility and you get constipation. And whenever you have slow bowels, you end up with uh, the wrong kind of microbes and bacteria because you have poor digestion. Stuff sits around and ferments, feeds the wrong bugs. You get dysbiosis. And then the, you know, the metabolites of those microbes that are out of, out of imbalance can then sort of poison the system. And you know, we know from the work of many researchers and, and really reviewed and made popular by, you know, like the David Perlmutter and others with the blood, you know, the, the gut brain connection, mm -hmm. that's, that's all in play. Um, not sure if that gut brain connection with, you know, with toxins and metabolites getting to the brain and actually causing uh, inflammation deep in the brain and microglial activation, if that's sort of a subset of yeah. patients that are also being labeled as fibromyalgia or really have primarily a different problem. Mm -hmm. um, but I can say that you know, almost all classic fibromyalgia patients have some level of gut dysfunction. They have gut symptoms. And then if you test them, like GI mapped them or something like that with, you know, a really good real-time quantitative PCR test, we see pretty consistent patterns of dysbiosis. But there hasn't been like one specific genus and species of organism overgrowing being implicated, right? right. That makes Not sense. that 
Yeah. So, so the vast majority of the time, it's a neurological thing that affects the gut versus the other way around. But it's not to say that it couldn't go the other way. It's just not yeah. as probably common. And it's, it's all a loop thing, right? It's like sure. a forward dysfunction. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I think that it's really interesting that you brought up serotonin. Um, well, actually, let's get to that in a sec. I'd love to talk about um, conventional approaches, and then we'll get more into the natural approaches. So conventional yeah. medicine, how do they approach treating fibromyalgia? Well, for a bunch of decades, they just refused to admit that it was a problem and existed yeah. and told the women to go home and get over it because there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, that leaves a little bit of desire, right? And shows a little bit of medical gender bias, unfortunately. Sure. Um, which luckily has abated to a large degree, although it's certainly not gone. Um, but then they started treating it with a older class of antidepressant, which was not an older class at the time, which are the tricyclic antidepressants. So for many, many years, the go-to prescription treatment was amitriptyline, nortriptyline, those type of meds. Um, they were first used actually not because of depression. They were used because there was a researcher at the University of Toronto named Harvey Moldovsky in the 70s. He worked with fibromyalgia patients and he was a sleep researcher and he knew that they all complained of sleep problems. Not that they couldn't sleep. The problem is the more they slept, the worse they got, right? Even though they were tired, they were trying to sleep away their tiredness and they would just get worse. He put him in sleep labs and really dissected it. And he's the one who found the alpha wave intrusion in the unrefreshed sleep pattern. So as a way to treat them and to see if he could change things, he gave them uh, a uh, tricyclic antidepressant because it had been known at that time as a sleep aid in an off-label way to induce better delta wave sleep. Uh, So he did that and, and many of these patients said, hey, you know, not only do I feel a little bit more refreshed and less tired, but I don't hurt as much. So that was sort of the beginning of using those drugs in that way for pain and then it became very popular in fact now in neurology when you have like weird neuropathies and pain that no one could describe they still give you neurontin tricyclic old antidepressant but then with newer antidepressants around and a greater understanding of you know the role of serotonin norepinephrine catecholamines and things like that they started using newer agents so they used ssris in the beginning but then they found snri so selective serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors uh, worked in some patients. And in others, they just used agents that would sort of dumb down the transmission in the nervous system to kind of make it a little bit duller, if you will. And they turned to anticonvulsives. Like they, like lamictal or like, yeah, what about and, like gabapentin? Uh, the, alpha, the alpha-1 delta ligands, right? So, and gabapentin and like gabinergic things. So, mm-hmm. um, so still, the, the two approved classes of drugs now by FDA for fibromyalgia, one is an SNRI, mm-hmm. uh, selective serotonin norep- norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and the other is an anticonvulsive or al- al- alpha-2 alpha delta ligand. Mm-hmm. So none of those drugs were ever developed from the ground floor up for fibromyalgia. They were sort of off-label uses that became popular, and then the manufacturer went back, registered for a new use with FDA. Mm-hmm got a new name. So it was like an old drug reborn as a new drug relabeled with a different name. Now it's Lyrica, right? So, um, yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, those drugs in a true classic fibromyalgia patient, 
if they're selected properly, which is often a problem, um, they can help some people. Um, They don't help everybody. They're by no means a cure, right? They can kind of dial down the symptoms a little bit. Right, just management. Yeah. Yeah. But there's an interesting phenomenon, and Rand did a, a big, large study on this, showing that in the majority of the patients, which is less than 50%, that these drugs help with fibromyalgia, the majority of them get benefit for several months, which then decays. So the clinical benefit decays, but the side effects don't. So, you know, it's, there's no pharma magic bullet here at all. Do you mean um, if they continue to stay on it or if they actually stop it, the side effects continue? No, if they continue on it, okay. the clinical benefit that they may have derived in the first couple of months often doesn't stay. They, right. they keep taking it, but they don't get the benefit anymore. Gotcha. But they, they keep getting the side effects if they got side effects from it. And then do you ever see where they go off the medication and they're actually worse than before they went on the medication? I think I've seen that. Okay. I can't think that I've like tightly documented right. that. You know, right. Sometimes it's hard to, to rely on the patient's perceptions of how they were before they went on Sure. Yeah. So subjective. Well, I I want everyone listening to make sure you get this book because, you know, we're going to get into more of the natural treatments, but there's only so much that Dr. Brady can go over on the show. So, I mean, this is what, 250 pages of, of information of how to address this, you know, more naturally. So, but we'll get into as much as we can. So, um, let's shift gears and talk about more of the kind of integrative naturopathic approach to addressing fibromyalgia. Yeah, well, we we hit it from multiple angles, right? You try to gang up on any kind of <laughs> condition, you know, metabolic, whether it's a metabolic biochemical condition, psychiatric, whatever it may be, you want to hit it from as many pressure points as possible because the body and our physiology, our metabolism is very adaptive. If you block it off if you block off root A, it goes through root B. You know what I mean? And right. that's, so the more you can kind of triangulate on it, the better. And we do that in fibromyalgia. So we take what the science has shown us from the neurotransmitter, biochemical, metabolic side, and we do things to upregulate the person's serotonergic um, drive. Um, not by using reuptake inhibitors because they often fail because the person just baseline isn't making enough serotonin to effectively block the re reuptake of, right? So mm-hmm. instead we use precursor therapy, right? We'll use mm-hmm. things like 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is locked into going to serotonin, unlike tryptophan, which can go other directions. 5-HTP only goes one way. So we use 5-HTP a lot, but we use it in combination with, um, with GABA, like a natural fermented GABA to hit the GABA side. And then we're trying to reduce that hypervigilance and that overproduction of catecholamines. So oftentimes we'll turn to botanical medicine for that and we'll use things that are calming to the central nervous system and particularly things that are calming and adaptogenic, help you know the adrenals deal with mm. stress. Most adaptogenics are stimulating, which you really don't wanna use. These, these, if you give things like Chinese ginseng you know, or Korean ginseng or Eleuthera or uh, rhodiola, things like that. Yeah. B vitamins and things in tyrosine. You'll make a lot of these patients worse. You're making more anxiety, more panic because you're feeding the catecholamines and they're already making too much of that stuff. So we tend to use calming things like ashwagandha, 
you know, uh, with any asomnifera, which is ashwagandha, right? Somnifera, somnolent. So it doesn't tend to make you sleepy. It just kind of chills you, makes you relax, not be hypervigilant. But uh, things like, you know, theanine, magnesium L3 and 8, um, uh, cannabinoids. We use CBD all the time now, particularly, mm. you know, it's really, it's a good anti-anxiety and it's somewhat good at pain dialing down pain perception. So wow. uh, we use cannabinoids in various forms, sometimes just a, you know, C, a, a full spectrum CBD, sometimes CBD with a little bit of THC in some people, full medical marijuana, THC, mm-hmm. CBD combos. It really depends on the person. Sure. Um, that makes sense. What about maybe like holy basil? Would that be a... Yeah, that's great. And we use a lot of phospholipids, you know, things to really calm the nervous system and get transmission to be a little bit less chaotic. So um, phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, G, uh, G, glycerophosphocholine, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, you really need to use some sort of cognitive behavioral therapy. So, sure. um, you know, some people use various forms of, um, you know, real-time EEG analysis. And then uh, we, we do some things to train people on their own to kind of change their default brainwave kind of patterning from less hypervigilant to more calm and accepting. And we do that with some like phone based and, and pad, you know, uh, iPad kind of based apps hmm. that they can use. Uh, sometimes we'll use uh, heart rate variability as a mm-hmm. way to train them to be calmer. Um, and in patients who really have traumatic abuse histories, things like that, a lot of family dysfunction, we have to have some difficult discussions with them. And certainly if, if it's ongoing, getting out of that scenario. Um, but if not, just sort of repairing it, you know, somehow, some way. So we work with some, you know, mental health professionals, counselors, uh, you know, uh, psychologists and things that understand this sort of hypervigilance, PTSD kind of variant uh, mind. And there's various, you know, ways to deal with that, which probably beyond the scope of this call. Yeah. Um, And, but on the other side of the coin, we often have to look at getting their thyroid back online and and optimized. And it goes beyond just looking at TSH and waiting for it to be exceedingly high and giving them Synthroid. It's a much more robust look at thyroid function and physiology. Um, Try to do everything we can to support adrenal function. And we do look energetically at the person from a mitochondrial standpoint. So we'll do organic acid testing and it helps us look at neurotransmitter levels, you know, ATP production, all of that kind of detox um, gives us a lot of information. So we kind of, in that aspect of it, we kind of go where the data brings us. So good. Can you guys see how different this is than just, oh, you have fibromyalgia, take some Lyrica, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like night and day. It couldn't be any different. Well, the crazy. other thing I didn't mention is sleep. We really yeah. try to on sleep because if we can't get them sleeping and getting into stage three, four sleep, we'll never get them better. So sure. um, we do a lot of sleep hygiene stuff. Uh, we use sleep aids at night, uh, at least for a while. Often we're using combos like of melatonin and GABA and in calming botanicals and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, just to, and usually sustained release melatonin to, you know, not because their problem isn't getting the sleep generally. Sometimes it is if they have that racing mind hypervigilant thing, you know, um, but it's usually that they, they just don't go into deep sleep. So getting a little bit more melatonin GABA in them when they're sleeping 
in a sustained released form can sometimes help that out. Sometimes we have to resort to even medications to get them to sleep for a while. Right. Never sleep. They're just not going to get better. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a particular dose you tend to do for melatonin? Do you like lower or higher doses? It depends on the person. I mean, mm-hmm. I usually start down around three milligrams. Right, right. But I've gone up as high as, you know, 10, 12 mm-hmm. in some. But in most people, and if you look at the literature, they say once you go beyond three, it's sort of super physiologic anyway. It shouldn't make a difference. I've mm-hmm. seen it. I've seen it make a difference in people. For sure. I mean, even just for the anti-inflammatory effects too. Um, So I would really think that such a central part of the treatment, especially since you see that PTSD is almost always, you know, the root of it, really getting that addressed and, you know, Yep. We don't, I mean, obviously we don't have a ton of time to go into it, but things like maybe like EMDR, like neurofeedback or somatic education. Like, do you like those kinds of therapies? Love that stuff. I think, I think any of those CV you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT mm-hmm. variants. Uh, I think if there's, if I had one, you know, one bullet in the chamber of the revolver, so to speak, that's, yeah. where, I, that's where I put my emphasis I would think so. over, over everything chemical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And it's so important because I'm sure a lot of people listening are taking all the things, but maybe they're not getting better and it could be something related to early traumas that need to be addressed. Um, my last question is about exercise type, because I would think that these folks with the hypervigilance probably, you know, may have a tendency to want to do more intense exercise, maybe like a lot of cardio or, you know. Yeah, knows. that usually destroys them. Right, you, exactly. Um, most of them who I see, you know, I kind of see the worst of the worst because I see them, you know, at the end of the referral chain and in the most desperate state. Um, they don't have the energy to exercise, you know, getting mm. them the, the block is a struggle because it makes them feel like they got hit by a train, you know, so we need to work them up slowly, but we do need to get them moving again. It's right. almost like the body is as a holographic, um, you know, the nervous system is like a big hologram. It's not a, just a wiring diagram the way we tend to marginalize it and, mm. you know, re- make it reductionist. It's really, it needs the body to move in space to be healthy. It's got to move through all its ranges of motion. So, we really start with um, range of motion exercises where it's not exertional, and then we work them up over mm-hmm. time. You don't want to put them in a overtly exertional state uh, because you'll drive the catecholamine system even harder. So right. we spend a lot of time in the book on that progressive movement, stretching, self-treatment, um, up to actual what you would probably consider exercise and and we have a lot of pictures and it's a whole kind of roadmap and then even on the website associated with the book there's even more advanced like videos on how to's Mm, cool super helpful yeah it's sort of just this classic like sympathetic overdrive need to support the parasympathetic it's like the the wired but tired type of situation yeah Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, so fun, so exciting. I love all of this. This is fun for me because it's like brain candy, but um, this is definitely one of my favorite shows because I just feel like this is such a poorly understood condition and you really broke it down to where you know a patient would understand and also doctors would get a lot out of this. So thank you so much for all the explanation and yeah, when we wrote, all of it. I wrote the book just because everyone kept bugging me for years and years. <laughs> You're like, here, it. read it. Don't talk to me anymore. Just read it. <laughs> Well, it was more like my colleagues saying, hey, you know, all this stuff is great. And we've learned a lot from you in these seminars. We use your stuff and it works well. But 
I'm not really good at explaining this to patients. So you need to tell mm. the story. Right? You need to take the story to the streets kind of thing. <laughs> right. And uh, so I did. And, um, I, you know, I wrote the book very intentionally to be very full of information and content, but not to overwhelm the reader. So the average person can read the book and really understand it and help determine whether they likely have true fibromyalgia or maybe one of the other things masquerading as fibromyalgia and, and you know, they have the wrong diagnosis. And, you know, first day of medical school, they tell you if the proper diagnosis is half the cure. Uh, if you're walking around with the wrong label or wrong diagnosis, you're probably getting the wrong treatment. You're not getting better. Mm. Um, so, and the book tries to, you know, make it clear, you know, when you're going to, when you can kind of deal with some of this yourself, when you can be your own self-advocate, but how to get the right kind of help. So how mm -hmm. to find the right kind of providers, the right kind of doctors, how to get rid of and fire the wrong kind of doctors, right. um, which is also equally important. Um, and there's a lot of resources to turn to in the book, uh, even to show your doctor, you know, where to go get this stuff. And, you know, you can only do so much in a printed book, but the website, fibrofix.com, uh, has a lot of extra stuff on it, um, even Wonderful. for providers to look at. Now, are you still um, working with patients nowadays? Yeah. Okay, I awesome. See patients one day a week, full day on Wednesdays, yeah. And I do remote Great. results and things. So like that. good. So you guys listening, I mean, don't take it upon yourself to navigate all of this because chances are, if you deal with this condition, you're probably exhausted, and this can seem even overwhelming to take on, right? So. Definitely, um, you know, seek out Dr. Brady. I'm happy to help too if you guys, you know, want to work together. And um, but don't don't just take it all upon yourself to navigate through this because you definitely deserve, um, you know, a doctor to help you through it. So, um, Dr. Brady, thank you so much. You guys can go to fibro. It's fibrofix.com, right? Not with yeah. That. The book site is fibrofix. Okay. But my main like professional site is drdavidbrady.com. So dr for Dr. Dr. David Brady, B-R-A-D-Y dot com. And that is information on my practice, a lot of my writings, interviews, things like that. So explore both of those sites and you'll you'll get a lot of you know uh, content that I just share with everybody. But if yeah, you need cool. more help, you know. love it. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It was so great to have you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dr. Low Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. And for more after the show, you can head over to drlowshow.com where you can find the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to the show and share with all your friends. And please head over to iTunes and leave the show a five-star review and leave a comment. I read each and every one and they warm my heart. Thank you so much again for joining us. I promise to keep bringing you fun, inspiring, empowering content. Until next time, lots of love and I'll talk to you soon.